The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, you, you are always working, even when it seems like you're losing, you're accomplishing your purposes. So we want to have a a picture, a big picture in our minds that in this moment you're working, even in all the ways that may be in our, our personal lives and our relationships and in the culture feels like we're losing. Gabe already prayed it, but because you are victorious in Jesus, we will be victorious. And you are working your good purposes to bring about your ultimate glory and the ultimate good and joy of your people. So we want to see it, we want to enter into it, and we want to love it. Love you, the God who is always working for the good of your people and the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, and I want to start by giving you a a big picture of who our God is. The author of Acts is Luke, and he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in his account of Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a humble donkey, and the people gathered, and they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, in glory in the highest. We love that scene, don't we? We love that scene because they're getting it right, and they don't get it right that often in the Gospels. And what we want to see is that that scene was no accident. God was actually working for thousands of years to bring that about. It was fulfilling a prophecy from thousands of years before from Zechariah Nine, nine. So I just want to read it for you and hear and see God's working over thousands of years. Zechariah 9, nine says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, how specific can you get? Thousands of years ago, here he comes, not just on a donkey, but on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So Palm Sunday was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 as Jesus rides into Jerusalem to shouts of praise. Well, when we turn our eyes to Acts 8 this morning, we see the disciples running out of Jerusalem under shouts of persecution. But if we've been listening, if we've been listening in Acts and and hearing the way that this author wants to show us that God is always working, we should not think this is by accident or that all of a sudden God is on his heels. Like like God is thrown off and he's going to have to figure out now what to do. Notice where they scatter to. They scatter to Judea and Samaria. Well, what do we know about Samaria. Samaria 
way back in the Old Testament had become the capital city for the northern kingdom of Israel that had rebelled against the house of David. So it wasn't liked even back then. Then they had been conquered and exiled by Assyria. And then they had come back, and when they came back, they intermarried and they intermingled their worship with all sorts of idolatrous worship. They even set up a false temple. So these descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel were considered, literally, you can go back and read this, half-breeds, ethnically, and idolaters, spiritually. Half-breeds, ethnically, idolaters, spiritually. They were not just disliked, they were despised. So much so that people would find other ways around, longer ways around their cities to just avoid even being near them. So what I want you to see, just like Palm Sunday was no accident, is that Acts 8 is no accident either with that in our mind. I think it's the fulfillment, for example, of many passages, but of Ezekiel 37. So Ezekiel 37, we see these dead bones of the people of Israel from the southern and the northern kingdoms laying there dusty, dead, a long time condemned by the Lord for their disobedience and their wickedness and their idolatry. But then Ezekiel 37 says that the word of the Lord will come. The Spirit of the Lord will blow and the people from these places will have new life in the Lord. They'll have one shepherd, a king from the line of David, and they will have an everlasting covenant. God will unite His people from Jerusalem and Samaria under the kingship and shepherding of a king from the line of David. Well, who is that king? We've seen him in Acts, haven't we? It's Jesus. Jesus is working in teaching. So what I want us to see in this story is that God is always working to fulfill His purposes. Always working to fulfill His purposes. Kids, when you go to bed at night, you expect that the sun will come up in the morning, don't you? Well, why, why do you expect that? Because you've seen it happen every day of your life. Right? Even Quinn, my youngest, who's two, loves to see the sunrise in the morning. And she's only two, but she's already seen it, what, 700 sometimes over and over again. So she just trusts the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar. <laughs> that wasn't in here, but I just watched it recently. <laughs> so you know that because you've seen it. And what I want us to get as we read the Bible, here's what the Bible is meant to do as the New Testament looks back to the Old Testament, as the, as the New Testament points back to the Old Testament authors. What it's meant to do is build in you this confidence that more sure than the sun coming out tomorrow are the promises of God is the fulfillment of God's purposes because He's always working. You're supposed to see this and marvel this is what he's doing, just like he said he would do. And it's supposed to build confidence in you. Jesus is working and teaching. I can trust him no matter what is happening in my life. That's the background we're supposed to have seen coming into Acts 8. Let's dive into point number one now. The persecution of man and the power of God. So in verses 4-8, to eight, we just heard Gabe read that the plans of those persecuting the church once again have backfired. 
Can you imagine being these leaders and just how absolutely frustrated you would always be? I'm just going to beat them up. They're going to talk more. We're going to persecute them. We're going to talk more. We're going to martyr them. They're going to just keep talking. In the book of Acts, we see this repeated theme of God with us, that His presence among us means that we are moving, living, breathing places of worship as the new temple of God. And so as the people are scattered from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, King Jesus is still among them. He's still working and teaching among them by the powerful presence of His Spirit. So we have this picture, this strange picture, of Saul ravaging the church. Like, ravaging is a strong word. Just beating it up, ripping it apart. Literally, it says dragging people out of their homes and throwing them into prison. That's after they've already seen one of their leaders martyred. We've just seen Stephen go to his death, this great suffering and persecution happening. And what it's leading to is a great spreading and proclamation of the name of Jesus. You're supposed to see that. Acts 1.8, You'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Acts 8, And they were scattered to Judea, and Samaria. So it's to see what's God doing. He's keeping His promise from Acts 1-8, even through persecution. Here we are introduced to Philip, in particular, who is this witness to Samaria. Tells us about his ministry. He's preaching Christ. He's doing powerful signs. Unclean spirits crying out with loud voices are coming out of people, reminding us of the ministry of Jesus. The people, it says, are, are paying attention to Him. They're hearing the words about Christ, His perfect life, His death for sins, His resurrection to conquer death, His ascension to the right hand of God. And they're seeing powerful signs that are confirming Jesus is real. He's alive. He's reigning. He's teaching. He's working. A revival is breaking out among a very despised people. Here's what it says the result is in verse 13. It says, They believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. So persecution scatters, and then proclamation that saves. People are coming to Jesus. Jesus said it. You're going to be my witnesses here. If you heard them, if you heard him at the beginning, you've probably gone, great, it's going to start here, right? We'll plan it, we'll spread it out, we'll get there, we'll start some churches here, we'll plan it out, we'll get there. And the way it's happening, the first church plants, we keep saying, are through persecution. Not through clever planning, not through a great strategy, but through suffering and persecution. That's what's happening in the scene. Jesus Fulfilling his purposes. And what is the result of this salvation in this powerful display? Look at verse 8. There was much joy in that city. Don't you love, like I love, that we don't have to choose between the glory of God and the joy of our souls? I love it. <laughs> it is the truth that has changed my life. 
I don't have to choose between the glory of God and the joy of my soul. This is what is so beautiful about God's promises to fulfill His purposes. It always leads to His glory and it always leads to the joy of His people. Every single time. Our joy in His glory. What a beautiful reality. An unshakable joy. The joy of being set free from false worship and false power and false hopes. The joy of being set free from demonic oppression. The joy of being set free from all this baggage and garbage in the city of Samaria. Can you imagine this city? The the King is proclaiming the good news to us. We are despised and He's came here in His ministry. Here's Philip in His ministry. We believe. We see. He's more powerful than all this darkness we can come to him and trust him and have joy man what would that have been like wouldn't it have been fun to be there like what was that revival like i think it can happen in lakeville the south suburbs this is the joy of being brought into the divine love of our triune god This is the joy of realizing God has been after you your whole life and He's called you home. Nothing can stop the purposes of God and His purposes expend to the most downtrodden and despised. Church, kings and empires and governments can try to snuff out Christ. And they will. Even this last week, right? I'm a... I'm a basketball guy, so this is my time of the year. This is March Madness, and it's been a good one if you haven't been tuning in. And there's a Cinderella story. You all know of Oral Roberts. Right? This Christian school, they had this covenant, very simple, vanilla Christian. There's all sorts of places right now trying to say, don't be excited about them. They have some beliefs about Jesus and sexuality and all these things. Like The culture is always going to do this. They're always going to try to snuff out Christ, snuff out Christians. But I said it last week, and we keep saying it over and over again. Empires and kings and great places will try to snuff out Jesus Christ and His people, and they have all faded away, and we are still here. We don't say that pridefully. Don't say it like we want to boast. We say it to instill confidence that this is our God. This is what He'll do and keep doing. This is the joy of counting all else as lost compared to knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. So no matter what you're walking through in this moment today, you're sitting here in this room, I know some of the joys in this room, I know some of the sorrows in this room, no matter what comes in our culture, no matter what fears you have for the future, you can rest assured that the persecution of man and the sufferings of this life are no match for the power of God. Corporately, culturally, personally. Point number two, the power of man and the power of God. Look at verses 9 to 11 with me. We meet our next character in this story. It says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So here we're introduced to Simon, a magician that had long 
declared himself great. Long declared that he himself had power from God. And because of this power that was, that was real, he had long amazed the people of Samaria with these signs. Many commentators here at this point connect the false worship of Samaria, the evil spirits coming out of the people, and the magic of Simon is a kind of demonic power. There's a kind of demonic stronghold in Samaria. Well, we, we know for sure is that this power wasn't from God, so I think that's a, a fair conclusion, or something like it. And so what we have here, as Philip shows up in Samaria, is a showdown of power. <laughs> Who is more powerful? Whatever is behind Simon or whatever is behind Philip. Look at verses 12 to 13. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We're meant to see people switching teams here. The people had been following the false power of Simon who called himself great, and now even more powerful signs and miracles were coming from Philip who says that Jesus is great. And not only is Jesus great, but this great one came and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and rose again to conquer death, and you can have life in him. So they repent, and they're baptized. And it even, for a moment, seems like Simon himself is drawn to this. He's, he's seeing something. He even gets baptized, which is a warning to us probably. There's a revival in Samaria by the powerful presence of King Jesus working to save people as they hear about who he is and what he's done. And so as this revival happens, it sounds like the apostles in Jerusalem hear about it. And so then in verses 14 to 16, it says they send Peter and John to Samaria and they pray that they'd receive the Holy Spirit because up to that point he had not yet fallen on any of them. And in verse 17, they pray and the Spirit comes. And it's worth hanging out here for just a minute and saying, what in the world is going on here? Didn't Peter say in Acts 2 that if people would repent, they'd receive the Holy Spirit? It seems like we've seen that, and yet the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on them. Were they not yet saved, even though they'd been baptized in the name of Jesus? Like, I just want us to think, what's, what's going on here? Because this is a text that gets used in lots of different ways, and lots of different traditions to say lots of different things. Well, here in Acts 8, and with Peter and the Gentiles in Acts 10, and then with Paul, when he's baptizing people in the name of Jesus, instead of the baptism of John in Acts 19, we have this kind of scene. Repentance in Jesus, baptism, and then kind of a, a later pouring out of the Spirit in this kind of Pentecost-like way. And I think what's going on here is that this is like a Samaritan Pentecost. So, so here's what I mean. Let me explain myself. I think what's happening here is a confirmation of the saving work of Jesus Christ. So as the gospel comes to Samaria, which remember was a despised, hated people, it probably would have been hard for the church to believe this was truly God working. 
In fact, we see this often in the book of Acts, like, it's almost like we, we can't believe the Gentiles got it too. <laughs> we can't believe they get to get in on this with us too. How much more the Samaritans, who were despised and hated. It would have been hard for the church to believe this was truly God working, but the apostles come, and their presence, and then the pouring out of the Spirit, just like it happened to the Jews at Pentecost, confirms this is the working and teaching of Jesus Christ. They were despised a day ago. They're brothers and sisters in Christ with you now. I think that same confirmation happens as the gospel moves officially to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And I think that confirmation happens as Paul shows the necessity to follow in the name of Jesus and not the baptism of just John in Acts 19. Therefore, just to be clear here at Bethlehem, we don't believe that you have to receive a second blessing of the Holy Spirit that is necessary for some kind of salvation or some kind of better version of Christianity, like there's the Christians and then there's the second blessing Christians. Or that you have to have this kind of second experience with the Holy Spirit to truly be saved. We think repentance is necessary as seen throughout the whole New Testament and these particular events were a special confirmation of the gospel. Why a confirmation of the gospel? But I think God wants to be clear by using the very same sign that He promised all the way back in Joel 2 that He is keeping His promises and saving a people through the person and work of Jesus. This confirmation shows us this is God at work. This is different than what you've seen in Simon. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth from every tribe, tongue, people, language, and nation. He's confirming that by these specific outpourings of the Spirit that show Yes, I'm going to keep doing this even to the ends of the earth. You with me? Seem like you're with me. You with me? Someone nod at me. You with me. All right. You're with me somewhat. Ask me questions later if you have them. But here's what I think this, this section shows clearly. Two things beyond that. First, there is no power that rivals the power of Jesus Christ. Just showing that beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's teaching... He's working. He's the King of Kings. It's powerful to know that He is the name that's above every name. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, this is showing Jesus is Lord and King and Savior and Leader. His power will always be unrivaled, even against the power of someone who for years and years and years was called great and amazed all the people. Second, Christianity is not magical or mystical. It's not magical or mystical. It's not one of many options. It's powerful and it's personal. Christianity has this exclusive claim that there is one way of salvation through the God-man, Jesus Christ. There's one Holy Spirit who empowers us to live. And everything else is a false hope and a false salvation. Everything else is a game that can only lead to death, not the true reality that can lead to life. It's a bold claim, but it's a claim the Bible makes over and over and over again. Kids, the world will tell you, just do what makes you happy in the moment. Follow whatever path you think is best. 
The world makes it seem like it's like choosing your favorite ice cream flavor. Right? And I have one of my kids, if you ask him, what's your favorite whatever, he says, I don't have a favorite, right? He just wants to keep his options open. He doesn't want to commit. And that's what, that's what the world would say. They're all pretty good. Right? Just choose which one seems best on that day. I just want to say to you, because I love you, it's not true. It's not true. There's only one way of salvation. It's Jesus. There's only one place you can be set free from sin and have a joy that doesn't ever go away. And it's Jesus. All other flavors have poison in them except the flavor of Jesus. All other things might taste good for a moment, but they only bring death. This section shows us the exclusive claims of Jesus and the power of God is supreme to the power of man. Now I doubt any of you have some little room in your house where you're practicing the dark magic at home. But perhaps as a church in your life, personally, we've subtly shifted our hope off of King Jesus and onto other things. We We all do it. Perhaps we've been tempted to trust in earthly power. Just put our hope there, like maybe this person can get done what I need to get done to feel safe and secure. Perhaps we've been amazed, dazzled by what some people can accomplish and been tempted to trust in them for hope and comfort and rest. And I'll just ask you, how is that going? How is it going hoping in these other things, hoping in these other places? We, we continue to see people we thought were trustworthy in our culture, big names in Christianity fall that maybe we were tempted to hope in. They had this gift or this acclaim or this thing that drew us to them and now they fall. What, what do we do? Or maybe it's a, a politician for you, like he can get done when I need him to get done to do what I need to do to feel comfortable and safe. And all those other hopes are sinking sand. They always, they always fail us. I will fail you. <laughs> right? Everyone on this stage, all the pastors, all the, all the elders, all the deacons, all the staff, at some point they will fail you. Nothing else we trust in can deliver on the hope, comfort, and rest we long for. It always fails us and always disappoints us. We don't want to be a pre-Philip kind of Samaria where we have mixed worship and mixed loyalties and mixed places we find our hope like we're practical syncretists. Trusting in this today and this tomorrow and this at lunch and this at dinner and then we pray quick before bed. We want to be a post-Philip kind of people. Saved and sustained in the person and work of Jesus alone so that there is much joy in this church no matter the circumstances. Every persecution and every pain because we know the good news of Jesus is enough for our weary souls. He is the place we run to over and over again. So the power of man is no match for the power of God and so our choice about where to put our hope should be easy. You want lasting comfort, lasting joy, lasting hope, lasting rest? Then let's remember together every week, but especially this Holy Week, the person and work of Jesus Christ and keep 
disciplining our hearts and our minds to go back to Him when we're tempted to run to other places. Point number three, the pride of man and the power of God. Now sadly, uh, we have a lot of witnesses from church history that say that this Simon the magician did not truly follow Jesus. There's all sorts of witnesses that actually uh, begin to label him as one of the great heretics of the early church. And I think we get a taste of that here. Simon sees the power that the apostles have and he wants it. He's used to amazing people. He's used to putting on a show. And there's a new, more powerful show in town that's put him out of business probably and brought great joy rather than likely the oppression that his dark magic had brought. So he wants in. And as a man of great power and wealth, he's probably used to getting what he wants. And so I want something. What do I do? Maybe I can buy it. And so he goes to Peter and he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And what he finds out from Peter is that the Holy Spirit is not for sale. The Holy Spirit blows where he wishes. The power of God is not for sale. God will not be used for our own selfish means or our own selfish gains. He will not be mocked. And here are Peter's pretty strong words of rebuke to Simon. He says, May your your silver perish with you. In other words, you can take it with you to condemnation. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter literally says, take your money with you into your destruction. It's no good here. You have no portion in the Holy Spirit. You're not a part of this thing. Your heart's not right before God. Repent. Plead for forgiveness. You're caught in sin and bitter that someone else has come and taken center stage, but God will not share center stage. His power can't be bought. He won't be manipulated. He will not be used by you. You better talk to Him and repent and plead to be set free. But in verse 24, we don't see Simon do that. We see Simon instead ask Peter to talk to God on his behalf and pray that these things would not come upon him. And I think, I think here in verse 24, I think he's genuinely afraid. Genuinely afraid but not able to repent. Genuinely afraid of, man, I've seen this power. <laughs> I've seen this new thing. I've seen what it does. It casts out evil spirits. They come crying with a loud voice out. It heals people. People are repenting and being baptized. This thing seems real, and I am afraid. But he's not convicted of his sin or able to repent. I think the strength of Peter's words, the call to repent, and the witness of church history shows that Simon was a false convert, drawn to the fame of the signs, but not to faith in the Savior. And there's a strong judgment promise for those whose pride keeps them from coming to Jesus and who want to use God instead of worship God. I just would pray that there's not anyone in this room right now that that has played the game of Christianity. 
used God for your, your own gains. Pretended uh, because you feel the emotions on a Sunday morning or you, you, something you, you can tell is good here, but you haven't yet trusted in Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent. There's this story that's always kind of stuck in, in my mind of, from Martin Lloyd-Jones in the first a church that he went to and pastored after coming out of the medical field. And it was a church that had been there a long time. And yet, as he preached over the first few years, these long-time church members realized, never repented. Never truly submitted my life to Jesus. Never truly put all my hope in Him for the forgiveness of my sins. Never truly given my whole life to Jesus. And one of those members that did that was his wife. So I don't want to just pass by this moment and act like that couldn't be happening in this room. I want to call us to repent while repentance is available to us. I want to call us to not try to share center stage with God. I want to call us to to not just be excited about what's happening at Bethlehem, but when we hear about victories of the Lord Jesus and other churches, that we'd be just excited about that kingdom work and not just our kingdom work. That we would not want to use the gospel for our own names. That we'd not just be going through the motions, loving worship, feeling emotions, and yet not truly trusting in Jesus and wanting to radically worship and obey Him outside of Sunday mornings. That we would not be a happy, well-kept, well-ordered bunch of suburbanites who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. The pride of man is no match for the power of God. And the pride of man must be condemned by the power of God, either in eternal punishment or by God's grace in the cross of Christ. And there's no shame to come to the cross of Christ. It is never too late to come to the cross of Christ if you're sitting here going, oh my, maybe I never have believed. Let's move to the application. So what we've seen today is that the persecution of man is no match for the power of God. The power of man is no match for the power of God. And the pride of man is no match for the power of God. God will not be thwarted. God has no true rivals in power. And God will not be manipulated. Instead, like we see in Jesus on Palm Sunday and in the church scattered in Acts 8, God will fulfill His purposes for His glory. This is our God. This is the God we worship. This is King Jesus teaching and working and reigning right now. King of kings, Lord of lords. The prayer I pray most often for us is that Jesus would be real to us. He'd be most real to us, more real than anything else in your life. And as we close, I want you to see that God will fulfill all His purposes for His glory by fulfilling all of His promises for His people. In other words, this is the picture we've got in the book of of Acts. Jesus promised they'd receive power and be His witnesses. And His people gather around His throne. They breathe in the Word. They breathe out prayer. They fast. King Jesus establishes His kingdom in Jerusalem and Samaria by the power of the Spirit. But don't miss how He does this. He does it through His people. Like real people on the ground. A guy named Philip. They have names to help us realize that they're real. 
This isn't just a movie we're watching. This happened. This is how God does it. God fulfills his eternal purposes by keeping all of his promises to his people as they are scattered through persecution and increasing in proclamation. And what I want to happen as we go through the book of Acts is that you don't look at the story of the Bible like some far-off thing that you can just admire and hope in, like a fireworks display on July 4th. Ooh, ah, just admire and feel good about it. That's good, right? That's not bad. It's good to know that all of history is headed toward a people from all nations gather on the throne of heaven to worship King Jesus. But I want you to not just be an observer of the story from a distance. I want you to see yourself as a participant in the story. How will we get to the end of history? Well, one answer is God will fulfill his purposes for his glory. How will we get to the end of history? God fulfilling his purposes for his glory and fulfilling his promises through people like you. <laughs> like this section over here, like through you. And, and section, what section is this? B and C and D and even again through the people in the comments. He'll even fulfill his purposes through them. Perhaps the reason the church in America has grown so stale and fragile is that we don't see ourselves as part of the story. And I think that the church in America was revealed to be a bit stale and fragile in 2020. We see ourselves as observers, not participants. Like, oh, that's great over there. It makes me feel good. Instead of realizing, like, that's the game I'm playing. That's what's going on. I ought to pray and fast and dive into the Word that much because that's the game I'm in. That's the story God's telling now. Frankly, it's easy to see persecution and opposition as an obstacle instead of an opportunity when we're so bloated on comfort that we don't see ourselves as part of this story. It's easy to trust in the power of man instead of the power of God when we've been so drunk on power that we don't see ourselves as part of this story. It's easy to pridefully use Christianity for selfish gain rather than desperately depend on Christ when Christianity has given us loads and loads of cultural capital so that we don't see ourselves as part of this story. But we are. We are part of this The church has been sleeping in comfort and power and pride and it is time to wake up and see that the story of the spread of the gospel for the glory of the name of Jesus and the eternal joy of all peoples is happening now and it must happen through us as God keeps His promise to never leave us or forsake us. If you want to ask, when is the time? The time is now. Your neighbors are lost. Your co-workers are lost. And yes, they're going to be more and more increasingly hostile towards you and Jesus. We have built our lives, our schedules, our budgets, our time. We've built our lives on so many things. Sometimes it's keeping up with these people or trying to look this way to these people. It's just kind of what we think we're supposed to do. We've, We've built our lives on so many things. And it is time to build our lives solely on the love of Christ so that our joy is unshakable and our reality is clear. Like, Aren't you sick of managing it all? 
Just trying to, to manage it, to keep up with the neighbors, to manage it, to keep up with those people, to, to manage it, to always be busy and always worn out and always try to find time to pray and always try to find time to read your Bible and always I'm going to talk to that neighbor eventually. Aren't you just tired of managing it all? Don't you just want to be on mission for the sake of Jesus Christ? And I'm only pressing it in because this is going to take a reordering of our lives, of my life. Go, how do we get on mission like this in these neighborhoods and to the nations? I want us to build our lives solely on the love of Christ so that our joy is unshakable and our reality is clear so that we're compelled by the love of Christ to be bold ambassadors for Him. This great story and these great purposes of God will be fulfilled. And I want us to be a part of it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're going to come to the table now. And I confess seeing pain and opposition as obstacles that make me angry and frustrated. I confess loving the power of man, wanting to do power plays, wanting to get my own way, wanting someone to advocate for me, to to get me the comfort and joy that I can only find in Jesus Christ. I confess to my own pride wanting to want to use Jesus for the sake of my name, wanting to see success for the sake of my name. I confess it, Lord. I, I am no different, Lord. And I want you to cause me to repent and us to repent that we might have true joy that comes from knowing we have Jesus and we get to spread Jesus. So as we take a couple minutes here to examine our hearts, work in us, show us our pride, show us our love of power, show us where we're finding comfort and hope and rest and other things, Lord, and convict us that you might set us free for the sake of your name. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.